0: today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 7, Chiasa. This is so much better than pizza, piano, and practices, Chiasa stated with her excited softness. She sat down on the bench in Yoyogi Park beside me holding my camera like a baby. Deep in thought, I didn't speak right away. Let's go to my house. You have to see this, she said, standing up again. Besides, I have to keep myself occupied to keep my mind off of our fast. That's the opposite of the Muslim mindset, I thought to myself. We want to keep our mind on the fast, its meaning, its reasons, and on making our prayers. Although I had been steadfast in not taking food and water from sunrise to sunset, I knew I was wrong for not being focused on Ramadan. My mind was jam-packed with winning back my wife. Chiasa removed her shoes at her front steps. You can leave your sneakers there, she said. No one will steal them, and I have some slippers for your feet. I paused at the bottom of the three cement steps leading to her front door. His bicycle is there. Grandfather's home. You can come in, she said happily. On the inside of the door was a shelf with racks of house slippers wrapped in plastic. Chiasa opened a pair and bent down to place them on my feet. Thank you. I got it, I told her, sliding each foot in one. Okay, she smiled halfway. Slid into her slippers and shouted, Tadaima! We both entered her living room. An ebony grand piano absorbed most of the space in her humble house. It glistened as though it had just been polished moments ago and appeared to be more expensive than everything else they had combined furniture, floor mats, and decorations. Konnichiwa, ojichan, I said, afterward, recalling from my study cards that I had just called him Grandfather, as though he were my own and not by his proper name. He spoke, Konnichiwa. Grandfather welcomes you, Chiasa summed up his words. Arigato, gozaimashita," I thanked him. Chiasa said some words to her grandfather, then turned toward me, saying, Drop that here, referring to my luggage. I laid my duffel down and my jansport. I was both hesitant and anxious. I felt inadequate about entering a home for the first time empty-handed. I was a newcomer and should present a gift. I felt at the same time anxious to talk with Chiasa and get on my way to Kyoto. Chattomate, I said. I bent on one knee to open my bag. I dug in and pulled out one of the gifts that Uma had prepared. For anyone who is good to my son. I opened it and pulled out the sterling silver case of Uma's homemade cigarettes. I approached him, holding the case with both hands on either side, presenting it. I said, Koriwa present o notomani. Grandfather, here is a gift for you. Both he and Chiasa smiled with great surprise. Chiasa clapped for me. Her grandfather stood up, all smiles himself, thanking me. I looked beyond the smiles, feeling that I had done the right thing, but wondering if on the inside, they thought my beginner's use of the Japanese language confirmed that all foreigners are fools to be tolerated as tourists only for a short period of time. I eased up the steps, uncomfortable at being invited and allowed to enter a young, single female's bedroom, and also under the watch of her grandfather. His eyes followed me up, but once I reached the top, there was no way for him to survey me any further. The second floor was sealed off by what appeared to be a paper wall. I looked up and saw that it had thick metal borders which lined the top sides and bottom. Chiasa placed three fingers in a slot and slid the wall all the way from left to right. Her amazing room had been revealed. She entered first, moving past a four-foot-tall, textured globe. She used one hand to set it off spinning. "'I know the name of every country on every continent and even most of the major islands,' she said. I didn't comment. I thought it meant that she had a sharp mind and unusual discipline, but must have also been lonely to dive into such study. I always wanted to know for certain where in the world my father was, and exactly how much distance there was between us, she told me as she set up the television, VCR, and camera. You have to see this, she pressed to remind. Her bed was a thin and narrow mattress laid in the furthest corner of her room on the floor, topped off by a peculiar pillow. It didn't seem like she could sleep comfortably. So beautiful. Who's this? Chiasa interrupted my thoughts. Uma's face was paused on her television screen. She looks like a film star, Chiasa remarked. Umi, my mother... I answered, using the Arabic word for mother rather than Uma, which is my mother's name. Honto, really? Chiasa exclaimed and touched the screen with two fingers as though she were touching Uma's skin. Chiasa seemed to be on pause like the picture. Then she bowed down to my Uma as though she were here in the room with us. As Chiasa stood up, she pressed fast forward. Here it is. She pressed stop. In play. My mind dumped every other thought and focused. The screen was bursting with hundreds of people, or perhaps thousands, mostly Japanese, mostly young, but all types streaming in between them. I could see the unimpressive Hachiko statue off in the not too far distance. People crowded around it together, yet it seemed as though each of them was there alone, just in the same space. Also standing near the statue, were groups of people talking to each other, waiting for each other, or looking for ones missing. Chiasa caught one mother's panicked expression and mission as she searched for someone, probably her child. I could see that Chiasa trailed her with the lens around the area of the Hachiko. From the film I understood now that Shaibuya was an extremely overcrowded space, even more so than Shinjuku Station, but what else? There, "'There he is now. Watch him,' she said a moment later. It was easy to notice him because she had captured him in the lens and zoomed in. He was a well-dressed Japanese man with a concentrated stare and pronounced jawline. He stood still in the swelling, swarming crowd and looked hard, moving his head and eyes in tiny measures. So,' While I was looking for the 100,000 yen shoe girl, I found him, Chiasa said. The man's shoes were quite expensive and complimented his suit. After about 45 seconds of shooting him from every angle, the camera followed him a few feet only where an African man was standing alone. The Japanese man spoke to him, but his words were inaudible in the rowdy crowd. He placed a hand on the African guy's shoulder. The African guy turned around and talked to him for about three seconds. The Japanese guy returned to his original spot. He searched around again. He moved in the opposite direction to the other side of Hachiko and approached another dark-skinned man. The same thing happened. By the fifth try, the young black guy he approached was standing with some friends. He began barking on the Japanese guy and then three more suited men appeared. From the crowd to the Japanese guys rescue keep watching now check out their headsets Chiasa pointed out that all three of the newly arrived Japanese men were wearing them they were the kind that sit in and around one ear only instead of being strapped on both sides she zoomed in on the four of them and the lens scanned them from head to to tell. The argument with the African teens broke up immediately after the three extra well-suited guys appeared. Then there was a break in the images and all I could see was upside down hordes of people. Keep watching, Chiasa said. The lens picked back up on the original suited guy leaving Hachiko at 3 p.m. sharp. Chiasa obviously followed him to the corner threw tens and hundreds of people to the curb. A Crown Vic rolled up at 3.06. The three extra guys were inside, one of them driving, two in the back. The original guy leaned in and talked to them and then walked away. The camera followed him. There he is. Chiasa jumped up from her chair and pressed pause. On the screen was the Japanese Bentley. The back right window lowered halfway. That's Naoko Nakamura. That's him, she said in a muted but excited tone. She pressed play again. On the screen now was the original suited man. He raised his right hand, shielding his image from Chiasa's lens. Then she dropped the camera to her side, and all I could decipher was Chiasa's voice saying, sumimasen, 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 before the picture went cold, the camera was off. We sat quietly. I can help you, she said. You came back alone, so I can see that you do need some help. I've been paying attention the whole time, so it's not Iwa. It's Akimi. Last night, I was at the wrong house, but that's only because you didn't trust me. It's Naoko Nakamura giving you a difficult time. He sent the note to the Shinjuku hostel. He pretended to be Akimi. His men showed up at Hachiko and intended to snatch you, or at least throw you in the car, or have you picked up by police. If you weren't so smart, they would have gotten you. She thought some more and added, but probably not the police. Falling in love with a girl is not a crime, even if her father and friends don't agree. She paused again. As long as she loves you, too. And why wouldn't she? Chiasa's voice trailed off to a low murmur. From my front pocket, I pulled out my wife's address and phone number in Kyoto. That's my next move, I thought to myself. Chiasa, I need you to take care of two things for me. First, I need you to call Akimi's house and ask to speak with Akimi. When she gets on, in Japanese, tell her that you are a friend of Mayonaka's. Mayonaka says not to worry. I'll arrive in Kyoto tonight. Keep your bags packed. Mayonaka will pay for everything you need. I promise I won't take too long. "'That's it?' Chiasa double-checked. "'Introduce myself as a friend now, not the translator.' "'That's it,' I confirmed. "'All right, let me give myself a name,' she said, "'straightening herself in the chair as though Akimi or whomever answered the phone "'could see her and pass judgment. "'Okay, I'm Aya. That's the name I'll use. "'And if she's not home, then what?' Chiasa asked. "'Should I leave any kind of message?' "'Just excuse yourself. Don't leave any information. "'Say you'll call back later,' I told her. "'And if she picks up and asks for you,' she asked a question. "'I like that she was so precise. "'After you tell her what I said, I'll get on and confirm,' I instructed her. "'Okay, give me the number,' she said. "'I slid it across her desk. Chiasa was sitting still, holding the phone number in her hand.' Quickly, I pulled out my study cards and began flipping through them for the Japanese words to express myself over the phone. Maybe Chiasa wanted to memorize it, I thought. She laid the paper down and said the same thing she said when I first met her a few days ago. My Aunt Tasha said, people who don't trust people end up trusting the wrong people. Who gave you this information, she asked me. What's up, I asked her. This is not an address or a phone number. Whoever gave you this message misled you. What does it say? I pushed. It's not cool, she said. Just tell me, I told her. Then she began to read it to me. Sorry, I cannot give you Akimi-san's telephone number and address. She wants you to know it. She will believe that you have it. But I have already done too much. I feel great shame. Go home. It is better that you leave Akimi alone so that she can forget. You don't even speak Japanese. True, you are very handsome. But this is not enough. Her simple words were weighted with insult. Without knowing me, she had decided that I was nothing. Nothing nothing but a handsome man she had boiled down my existence to only the mud I was made of as though I had no purpose no faith no heart no soul no business no talent no culture and no place in the world especially not here in Japan I sat back in my chair ran my hand over my caesar. I dropped my head down, then lifted it back up. Inside of myself, I shouted, Why is this bullshit going on? But in my posture, I remained calm. Chiasa had the decency to look away from my agony. Moments later, I understood that I needed prayer to quiet my mind. Not just a recitation of words, but a consultation with Allah so I excused myself to the men's room, washed my face and nose, hands and feet. When I returned, I was left alone in Chiasa's room. She understood me in this, I thought. In her room, facing the west, the direction of the Kaaba, I made my prayer. Very comforted and soothed, After an amount of time unknown to me, I raised my head from the floor. My eyes and ears readjusted as I turned my head left, then right, and got up from my knees. The humble house, which had been silent before, was filled now with beautiful music. The tones were crisp and clear and soft and soothing and sweet and melodious as they were seeping and pouring through her paper wall it was not music that i was accustomed to hearing or that i played in my earphones it was live piano playing and it was obvious even to me who played no instruments that it was perfect she did not interrupt my prayer and i would not interrupt her piano i walked around her room Seeing Chiasa for the first time, it seemed, even though I had met her days ago and been upstairs in her bedroom for almost two hours, and as I saw her, music spoke to me somehow. On my right was a wall of photos. On the left was a warrior's wall of wicked swords, not of the bamboo, but of steel, the kind she wanted to use, the sharp and deadly type raised up above a bookcase filled with books in both languages. As I surveyed them, I thought her choices were unusual. She wasn't reading manga. It was mostly biographies and autobiographies. I moved toward the right side, pulled in by a poster-sized photo of Chiasa, probably around age 13, in a marigold ballerina tutu wearing gold toe shoes. She appeared long and slim. She was balancing herself on one leg and standing perfectly straight on only the toes of her left foot. Her other leg was raised and bent. Her toe shoe pointed to the inside of her right knee. Her arms were lifted and locked into a graceful position above her head. Her skin was smooth, but more than all that, the pull of the photo was the way she twisted up her lips and screwed up her face at what had to happen less than a second before the photographer snapped the shot. It was as though she wanted the whole world to know that she hated ballet. Her normally powerful pretty gray eyes were saying, I don't want to dance, but I'll do it just to shut you up. I smiled. Beside the vertical ballerina blow-up was a long rectangular shot of about 180 Japanese people on first glance, I assumed it was a school photo. On a closer look, it obviously wasn't. There were babies, and toddlers, and children, and teens, and mothers, and fathers, and elders. It was not a casual shot like a family gathered at a reunion or a barbecue. It was more like each of them struck a stiff pose, their clothes crisp and high quality, someone older resting their hand on someone younger than themselves, almost to keep them still and perfect also. It was outdoors with nature as the backdrop. I wondered what the event or purpose of their coming together was, and why she had it posted on her wall. As I surveyed it more, there was one thing that was different from everything else. It was Chiasa's little black face floating in a sea of others, Everyone in the picture was Japanese, but only Chiasa's face was sun-kissed. If she had a smile, it wasn't anywhere to be found in this photo. As I looked at the other pictures she'd posted, the feeling in her eyes remained the same. Suddenly, the piano playing softened as though she had gone from playing all the keys to playing only a few at the far end of keyboard and then just three keys and two keys and then only one. I overheard her speaking in her language. Then a man's voice began speaking in Japanese, different from the voice of her grandfather. Then her grandfather and she thanked him repeatedly. I pictured her bowing two or three times as they seemed to do at hellos and goodbyes, and overdue before teachers and elders. Her front door opened and closed, and she rushed up the stairs excited, Are you okay, she asked. Of course, I responded. Sorry about that. If I don't do my piano lesson, that's the one thing that'll make my mother show up here, so I do it. I thought her comment was strange and sad. It's half an hour until sunset. Should I cook? You didn't even eat the breakfast I made for you, she frowned dramatically. What's this, I asked her, pointing at the rectangular shot family photo she answered turning suddenly serious what about your father I asked cautiously knowing that it was too personal a question but seriously wondering how she could have a wall plastered with photos from top to bottom but no trace of the one she talked about openly affectionately and constantly she walked over and stood facing the photo wall Then she pointed to a patch of Polaroids. My father sent me this on my eighth birthday. It was a picture of the huge globe she had seated in the center of her room. This was when he went to Germany. Then she moved her finger and said, this was from ninth birthday. I moved closer in to where she was standing and looked. It was a red Schwinn bicycle. Then she pointed to another and this was for my 10th birthday. It was a karaoke machine with Chiasa standing in front of it, holding a microphone. That's when he was stationed in Saudi Arabia. As Chiasa showcased her gifts of all types, she said, My father promised to give me whatever, whatever I ask for each year on my birthday. It's like one wish a year that I always look forward to. There was only one thing I'm not allowed to ask for, and he didn't make up that rule until after I asked for it. She smiled a melancholy smile. I just looked at her. I knew she would tell me if she wanted to. One month before my 12th birthday, I asked if he could come home on my 12th birthday to celebrate with me. I told him that was all I wanted. He was in Afghanistan. He told me That I'm not allowed to ask for that because he is working and that he is helping so many people around the world. So it's selfish to ask him to stop helping them and come see me. Besides, she said, my father says he will always come home to me at some point each year. Does he? I asked. Yep. I wait and wait, and eventually, when his work is finished, he comes. She smiled. So. Aren't you wondering what gift he gave me on my 12th birthday instead of coming home? She turned to me, excited. I didn't look back at her Polaroids. Probably that big piano downstairs, I guessed. She frowned. No, I hate playing the piano. My mother brought that thing. Look. She stepped in front of the picture she had been blocking. It was a beautiful black mare standing strong in a wide open field of glistening, green grass she's beautiful I said staring and I meant it I love riding her she's at the stable in Nagano I go there on breaks and holidays when I'm not fighting in tournaments I imagined her on that horse galloping through the wide open fields at a high speed as my mind wandered further I snatched back the image and refocused she was up to her 16th birthday now that's my bike you saw it today she smiled no that's your bike i said pointing to her 10 year old gift the red schwinn this is a mean ass racing machine for pushing the limits i told her while again admiring the electric blue color my mother hates my motorcycle but when i ride it i feel free she also said i knew what i was doing collecting information on this girl who had become too close and too necessary to my life in two and a half days. I was forming a more detailed picture of Chiasa. Like usual, I would take a few hours to think and feel and then I would decide to trust or move on with my solo style. Seventeen is coming up. What's your wish? I asked her. I'm still thinking, she said. It might be something that is impossible for daddy to get for me, but he'll like that. He loves a challenge, and he'll say, nothing is impossible once he decides on it. She paused a minute. My grandfather says, You feel like my father, she said strangely. I look like him? I asked her. No, you feel like him, she said softly. Anyway, He's in the military, not like a low rank. He can't be photographed, so my pictures of him are held in my heart. Carefully, I listened. Not a low rank, she had said. Of course not, I thought to myself. He had to be some secret service type. Probably he pushed himself up from the bottom, though. No, I refigured. His position was so top secret, even Shiasa didn't know the truth. maybe she did. I knew for a fact that regular army guys and even other military types take photos. I had seen plenty, especially in the homes of customers. I delivered Uma Designs clothing too, but I didn't ask for an, an explanation concerning her father. How could I? When I wouldn't answer one personal question about my own father, not to anyone other than Uma and maybe Naja or my wife. "'Do you plan on working for the military?' I asked her. "'Definitely not. "'I'm going to have my own company.' "'I'm going to be a mercenary,' she said solemnly. "'But I didn't know that word, so I didn't comment. "'I would look it up tonight.' "'Sun's down,' she also announced. "'Let's drink some water and split a banana. "'Then we'll go out for dinner,' I told her. "'Okay, if you want,' she agreed.' "'Have you ever seen this symbol?' I asked her, "'drawing the symbol for halal foods on a scrap of paper.' "'She looked at it curiously, paused, and answered, "'No, but I have seen this one.' "'She drew another symbol. "'Immediately I recognized it, same as my ring, "'the one Sensei had gifted to me. "'She walked away, opened her desk drawer, "'and placed the same ring on her finger.' I've seen it on you, and now you see mine on me. It is the symbol of the secret society of ninja-trained warriors, she said softly. Then she added, Comrade, please take me seriously. She bowed her head, but not her body. Isu was where we ate dinner, a halal restaurant owned by some African Muslims from Senegal. Aki, the Kenyan who I met in Halajuku, put me up on it. It depends on what you're looking for in terms of atmosphere, Aki said. You will find halal foods in Shin Okubu prepared by the Pakistanis, in Shinjuku prepared by the Indians and in Kikeburo, prepared by the Nigerians or Bangladeshis, or in Ibisu, by Senegalese. Which one do you prefer? Then he added with a smile, and I see you are still here. Your one night in Harajuku has turned into two, and this is only the beginning. I am sure, he joked. The Senegalese I knew were similar in presentation to the Sudanese. tall, blacker than black and regal, strong men. A delegation of Senegalese had visited my father's estate once. While I joined and sat silently watching, I heard them joke of the ways they shared and other ways they differed. One of them boasted that my father was just getting started with this small group of only three wives. My father told them that it was his understanding that in Islam, Allah sets limits because it is best for us. He then added that, yes, I have only three wives, but they are the best three women in the world with more purpose and value than 300. My father's words may have made them curious. However, Muslim male style, that delegation would for certain never get to lay eyes on my father's wives. Chiasa had unbraided her hair while she waited for me in Harajuku. Now it was long and thick like rope, She shook it with her fingers and wore it wild. After seeing my reaction to her school uniform, and then the thin blouse that she tried to wear out to dinner, she knew to dress modestly. She was chilling now, in a sky-blue linen dress with matching pants and blue leather sandals. She was not my woman, but I believed that when a man stands side by side with a woman, he is responsible for her in that moment." and if anyone offended her, it would be the same as if they attacked me because she was with me. So, I believe that any woman walking in public or traveling any place outside her home puts all the men at risk if she is immodest and nearly naked. I knew from living in America that for me to think this way was unpopular. But my faith and beliefs, as well as my heart, were all homegrown in the soil tilled and built on by my father, his father, and his father's father. We ate at a restaurant named Taranga. The owner, a tall, dark Senegalese wearing natural locks, greeted me with a welcoming West African smile, an embrace of brotherhood. He introduced himself as Billy, a ridiculous name, I thought, I knew, however, that many Muslims and people of any and all faiths in foreign lands give themselves ridiculous English names to make it easy for others to pronounce and remember. Besides, I had not told anyone my name. Of course, in the telling of my true name is the name of my father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. So, the owner was Billy to me. No problem. The warmth inside and the vibrant music and scent of spices created that feeling that separated Chiasa and me from the fact that we were in Tokyo. In fact it reminded me that I hadn't heard any real music for three days. Now it was as though we had been transported to Dakar. The walls were all earth tones and the cooking station formed an aisle which made two sections in the same restaurant whatever side you chose, you were unable to see the other. So all the customers gathered to one side, African style. It was as though every customer had arrived at the restaurant in one same group and had known each other for weeks or months or even years. The owner and host, Billy, raised the topics of conversation and invited and stroked and pulled till everyone joined in comfortably, like one family. Chiasa was hungry and didn't seem to mind that she was surrounded by eight African men. When we arrived, they were speaking in Wolof, the main language of Senegal. They would shift into French at times, but when I ordered our food in English, Billy switched to using English, and then everyone followed. So, my brother, how long have you been in Tokyo, Billy asked me loud enough for all three days, I told them. And already you are losing weight. Welcome to Japan. All the men laughed. You have come now to the right place. We will give you an African man's meal. And when you have finished, no matter where you go in Tokyo, you will be banging on Billy's door. And most of the time, Billy will be here. But sometimes, Billy go out. He dramatized in his deep voice, like my southern grandfather. They all laughed. I looked around. Take it easy, brother. We are all friends here. All of us are married men, he admitted. But we are all missing our mamas. They laughed some more as though the cooking seasonings thickened in the air. They laughed some more as the cooking seasonings thickened in the air and brought a fragrance that could also fill up the belly. I eased some. They were married, and for me, that is a good thing i figured out that if i didn't cook my food myself i couldn't survive in japan such stingy and tasteless little meals make a big man angry he performed and i saw chiasa's smile billy's show continued so i call mama mama say come home son i cook for you everything billy say mama i sent you much money today for our family Japan is good for making money so I stay. Mama say my son has to eat good food. I'll send good Senegalese wife to cook for you but Billy say no mama don't do that and now everyone is laughing. Billy turns to me and says Senegalese girl is good girl but Japanese wife no like. In Senegal woman knows how to share and behave in Japan. Billy needs Japanese wife for immigration. He hollowed out the word. Two African male cooks came rushing out from the kitchen looking startled. Meanwhile, the male waiter came carrying me and Chiasa's meal still sizzling on one large tray, same way we serve it in Sudan. As the comedy continued, Chiasa and I cleaned our fingers with the steaming hot washcloths we were given. I whispered, Allah, over my food and began eating with my right hand from me and chiasa's one tray african style chiasa looked at my hand and her eyes scanned the other tables she hesitated she opened her bag pulled out a pair of chopsticks looked at them looked around the room and put them back before billy married japanese girl he had to creep around tokyo like this? Billy raised his more than six foot frame on his tiptoes and began tiptoeing across his restaurant. One day back then I am at apartment with friends. Police come on the block. I say oh no. All the African men in the restaurant stopped joking and their laughs turned to murmurs of disapproval. It seemed all around the world African men all felt the same stab and burn when the word police is spoken. Even more, whenever cops came around, Billy continued. First come police, then come immigration police. Now I am on the fire escape, crouching like a tiger, but Japanese immigration is mean and patient. They wait on the block, search on the block for six hours. When finally they leave, my legs are so painful I cannot stand, cannot walk. I tell my Japanese girlfriend, okay, we get married. Now everyone was laughing again. I didn't know the particular powers of the human mind, but truthfully, my own mind was divided into at least five parts. I could hear Billy's performance and see all his dramatic actions. He was in my fifth mind. Meanwhile, I observed Chiasa closely, considering whether or not to bring her all the way into my purpose and mission here in Japan. She was in my fourth mind. Then there was my wife, who sat in the center of my visions and made my heart move and rush and race. She was not a compromise or a convenience. She was not a plaything or an immigration decoy. She was not second to any unmarried woman I know or knew or would ever come to know. Hakimi was in my third mind. The method and the fight and how to make it all happen with conflicting information and conflicting interest with a foreign tongue and on foreign land, that filled up my second mind. And then there was my Uma, my heart and my purpose. She's always in my first mind. I needed to contact her to be sure that she was at ease and to put her mind at peace but I was feeling a shame of a particular Sudanese kind that I had held Akimi in my arms last night and then let her slip away. But kidnapping and murder are capital crimes. Strategically, I knew as had cautioned me that Akimi needed to leave her father of her own free will out her own front door on her own two feet, not by climbing a tree, sliding down a back wall, crawling through a thick bush and leaping into a back alley without any consideration. That would be no good. Billy's booming voice grew extra excited. My fifth mind took over the others and I listened. In Japan, an African man needs two passports, one like this. Billy pulled his passport from his back pocket and the restaurant door opened, causing Billy to pause. It was two Japanese girls coming through, all smiles carrying groceries. Billy seemed surprised, but he pulled them into the drama. And my Japanese wife, he walked over and hugged her. The male customers let out muted laughs and were obviously already familiar with Billy's wife. The two Japanese girls bowed to the customers and walked over to the other side of the restaurant and disappeared. Billy continued at half the volume. "'If you want to be part of it, you need two passports. If you want to own land in Japan, you need two passports. If you want to own a business in Japan, you need two passports. "'This one here,' he said." holding his passport up for all to see. And that one there. He pointed toward the room where his wife had walked away. I could tell Chiasa had never tasted Senegalese food, but I could also feel that she was enjoying herself. She was reserved, and aside from her light laughter, she did not say one word to any other person in the room. I thought it was a clever position she was in. No one had to know that she was Japanese or that she spoke Japanese unless she wanted them to. She blended in well with the Africans because she was one. She fit in with the Japanese because she was one. It was also interesting how she knew so much about Tokyo, its customs, its streets, its prefectures and all, but here was a place minutes from her house that she had never seen with her perfect vision true we were three flights up on a side street in Ibisu in the Tokyo night but sometimes even when you know a lot about a place there is still much to learn. Billy was easing into his finale. He asked that African man he asked the African men gathered my wife here asked me who is more important to you me or your mother. So I put the question to you, my brothers, who is number one? All the African men stood. All were six feet tall or more. All the African men were as black or as black as, or blacker than me. All masculine and built, sturdy and strong. In one chorus they all shouted, and then the shouts became a chant, and they jumped and danced. "'Mama, mama, mama,' Billy said, "'Of course it's mama. "'When my mama said to me, "'You are a good boy. "'You look fresh and cleaning your jellabaya. "'You have done a good job, son. "'I smile like this.' "'Billy's smile spread brightly across his face. "'No woman here can top that,' Billy said, "'and they all chanted, "'Mama!' in agreement.' The night at Terenga and Ibisu ended with a competitive game of darts. Billy had the waiters push all the tables on our side to the wall. As new customers arrived, he had them seated on the opposite side. The dart competition heated up, and each of the eight African men became deeply serious when they took aim at the bull's eye mounted on a far wall you are winning because you have a good luck charm Billy said to me while nodding his head toward Chiasa I don't think that's it I told him solemnly Chiasa stepped up to the board pulled loose five darts and stepped all the way back behind the line drawn on the restaurant floor without talking or smiling she fired each of the five darts into the bull's eye amazed the men cheered for her Throughout the night, I saw and heard Billy speak six different languages. Wolof, French, English, Japanese, Italian, and German. He was a gracious host, a humorous man, and a Senegalese by, by a Fall Muslim. He loved his mama and handled his business and was not anybody's fool. Although I never would allow my wife to be my passport, I didn't look down on him. Speaking six languages and sending his money home to his village was worthy of respect, and the way he flowed in his use of the Japanese language got me hyped. I made myself a promise that night. Hiranga, katakana, three thousand different kanji, whatever. I would learn to speak Japanese fluently, With that kind of ease and dexterity, I paid and left with my lucky charm. "'Chiasa,' I said. "'Hi,' she answered with a smile. "'Do you believe in God?' I asked, to my own surprise. "'Um, I believe in right and wrong,' she said softly. "'Do you believe that you were created?' I asked her. She didn't answer and we continued walking slowly through the streets of Ibisu toward the station. Look at the moon, I told her, she looked. Now, look at your fingers, I told her, she looked. Now, touch your skin. She lifted her pretty hands to her face and stroked her own cheek. I believe that Allah created all of this, and these beautiful expressions of Allah Cannot be duplicated by any man. We walked silently through the crowds and into the station. On the train, we took the two-seater in the corner situated right by the exit. I'm leaving for Kyoto in the morning, I told her. Both of our eyes were facing forward and not toward one another. You have been helpful to me. And I thank you. For real. Do you believe in fate? She suddenly asked. Like something happened simply because it was supposed to, and nothing that you do could have prevented things from going that way. It sounds familiar to something that Muslims say. It goes like this, I plan, you plan, we plan, they plan, but Allah is the best of planners, I shared with her. She smiled and sat back some to think on it. It's funny how life goes, isn't it? She asked, speaking to me but more like she was thinking aloud i met you because of my enemy yuka i hate that but i saw you first i was walking the aisle to get magazines from the flight attendant you had your sunglasses on indoors i thought that was funny when you lifted your hand to adjust them i saw the ring i looked down at the ring since they had given to me I recalled my disappointment with the fact that I had left my gold band, the one symbolizing my marriage to Akimi, on the sink at the Ghazali's. While riding in mister Gazali's taxi to JFK JFK Airport, I wondered if mistakenly leaving my wedding band behind meant anything. I convinced myself, however, that it was a simple mistake, not an omen or a sign. Walking now through the streets of Harajuku, we reached the point where we could separate. I'll walk you home, my daughter. You have to come and get your camera and things, unless you just want me to have them, she smiled. After gathering my few things from her home and saying my farewell to her grandfather, I eased out of the house slippers she had once again provided and back into my niggies. She followed me outside and offered, I'll ride you back on my bicycle. So I walked you home. Now you'll ride me back. Then I walk you home again. I asked with a laugh. Nah, I'm cool. I told her, and then left. Two and a half minutes into my walk back to the hostel, I stopped, in the middle of the Harajuku madness, stood beside some Japanese dude dressed like a pirate and two others like elves, and asked myself, What are you doing? You have three days to find your wife before Nakamura leaves on his Asian tour will he take her with him? You have one location to check in Kyoto, Akimi's high school, and that's it. Would she go back to school there? You have four days before your flight back to New York. Will you return empty-handed? All five of my minds began to merge and shook off my doubts that were occurring in my fourth mind about Chiasa. Yes, her father was high up in the American military, and if I fucked up, there would be great consequences for me. Naoko Nakamura hated Americans, so Chiasa's father and Akimi's father would be natural enemies. Besides, I wouldn't let Chiasa get hurt. I'd just buy her translation and tour guide services same as I had been doing here in Tokyo. If not Chiasa, then who? I would have to find help down in Kyoto, so why not the girl I already got to know? So what was it? What was holding me back? I questioned myself. Then myself fought myself. In order to be completely honest with myself, I focused in on only that one question. What is the holdup with you concerning Chiasa? The answer came bursting from my brain. It was something that I had known from the moment I saw her. This girl, Chiasa, is a pretty badass beautiful girl ninja more than I could have ever cooked up in my imagination I met her three days ago and the energy is moving too fast if I could control the energy at least on my part we could work together if not we couldn't under these circumstances I couldn't allow anyone to distract me from my mission and my wife is the only one I love so why spark something else up while I'm trying to get my love back and settled and secured. My mind was putting it together swiftly. Now that I had moved beyond the emotion and the thing that was holding me back, I could shoot straight to the strategy that I was trying to organize in my mind over dinner. One, I would have Chiasa read Akimi's diary and translate it only and translate only the names, addresses and information I needed for the search. We could look up the places beforehand on the map. Maybe there were even some phone numbers in her diary. I could have Chiasa make calls for me while I was in Kyoto. And I could have her sit by her phone and wait for me to call in and give her instructions on what I needed or wanted to ask. That was it. That would work. I was certain now. I did a 180 and headed back to Chiasa's. Before reaching her house, I jumped in a phone booth and called her. There was no answer. It was 10 p.m., Could she have fallen asleep that quick? Or did she go out into the night? Was she out riding her motorcycle and erasing me from her thoughts and feelings? When I opened the door to my room in Harajuku, Chihasa was there. Her eyes filled with emotion. I had an idea, she said. I interrupted her. I have a couple of things for you to do for me. You're paid until Friday anyway, right? Right, she agreed. I am trusting you, I told her. I walked to my duffel and pulled out the diary. Read this for me. Write down any names of friends or family addresses and telephone numbers you find in here and give them to me. Come back in the morning and translate for me. I have to activate my rail pass for the bullet train. Afterward, I need you to stay by the phone at your room, like its headquarters. I'll let you know who I'll need you to call and what I need you to say and do. "'Okay?' I asked. She smiled. "'Akimi's diary, right?' "'Hi,' I told her. She laughed some at my random and limited use of the Japanese language. She sat on my bed and hiked up her legs and laid the diary on top of her knees and began reading. I had meant for her to take it home with her, but she looked like she thought she was home already. "'I'll be back,' I told her and left. For an hour, I spoke to Uma.' until my phone card burned out Naja was excited did you see Akimi she had asked me of course I told her confidently was she trying to speak English Naja asked coyly she was speaking English the same as Uma I answered and me and Naja had a good laugh because we know that is not at all that is not at all is she coming back with you Naja asked of course I told her truly believing so How was she acting? Was she acting right or was she acting funny? Naja asked, curious as usual. Akimi is sweet. She is my wife. Of course she was acting right, I told her. After the call, I walked over to the Harajuku dollar store and picked up a new notebook for Chiasa to place the info in. I was hoping that there was some real info in Akimi's diary to help me locate Akimi swiftly. I was blocking my mind from showing me images of Akimi's tears, the ones I knew she would have after Iwa, or the girl in the pink pumps, probably the same person, gave her a twisted, lying message about something that I never said or did. I knew the sadness that would engulf her at the thought that I might not show up in Kyoto. At the same time, I knew that my wife was smart, Purposely, she had placed a yellow bulb in the lamp and left it on overnight at her Roppongi house, probably every night. She knew that if I saw that light, I would know that, yes, Akimi is near. After all, this was the color of the bulb in the basement I chose, where she and I, two virgins, made love. She had left me the right clues once before, and I trusted she would leave a trail once again. I resisted imagining the real-life scenes where her father was forcing her to move from place to place to stay away from me. I would be smart also and have faith that Akimi was my fate and I was hers. When I opened the door to my room, Chihasa's big eyes were tear-filled. When she saw me, her tears spilled. I didn't know what happened. What happened, I asked her you're married she asked yes i responded why are you crying Mm, what an incredible story she said softly wiping her tears any names addresses phone numbers write them down in here i told her tossing the notebook which landed on the bed right at her feet she clutched the diary and held it against her breasts as though it were her private truth "'That notebook isn't good enough for this story. "'I'll meet you back here in the morning,' Chiasa said. "'What time?' I asked her. "'I'll be here before sunrise so we can eat and drink together,' she said softly. "'Why are you fasting, Chiasa?' I asked her seriously. "'Because it feels like the right thing to do. "'Because I think you are so cool walking around in Japan, "'doing something that no one else seems to be doing, Not "'not eating or drinking in the Tokyo hot sun.'" That's amazing to me. That's how I am. And I want to become unlike anybody else, completely different. Oddly, she left out in a hurry. There are over 3 billion Muslims in the world, I thought to myself. And each one of them is required to fast for Ramadan unless they are sickly or traveling. I am not the only one. Thankfully.